0: All right, good morning. Let me pray. Dear God, we thank you that you have ransomed a people for yourself from every tribe and language, from every people and nation. Thank you that you sit enthroned as Lord. And we pray that we would see that kingdom go out in this earth through our lives. Amen. I'm going to have to apologize. I do have this cold, so I may need to pause from time to time to sniff (laughs) or uh, blow my nose. But we'll see how this goes. Um, I thought it would be good to open the sermon today with a reminder that this whole sermon series has been an Easter tide series. We kicked it off with the claim that, the death, and, that, that um, the death and resurrection of Jesus and that the inaugurated eschatology that it brings about frames the entire letter of 2 Corinthians, and particularly the chunk of it that we've been working through here in the middle. And so, to this end, I wanted to read a bit from N.T. Wright that discusses this and that comments specifically on the passage that we are reading today. He says, the point has often been made, but needs to be stated again, because it is the foundation of everything that Paul the Apostle came to believe. If Jesus of Nazareth had been raised from the dead, then it meant either that the whole cosmos had gone completely mad, or that the resurrection had come forward into the present. In just this one case, with Jesus leading the way and everyone else following in due course. Again, by itself, this might not have made much sense. Why Jesus, one might ask? And why would his resurrection mean that others would follow? Here we encounter one of the other key implications of Easter. If Jesus had been crucified as a messianic pretender, but had been vindicated by being raised from the dead, which could only be the work of the Creator God, then he was, after all, Israel's Messiah. And that, as we have already seen, compelled a fresh evaluation of more or less everything else. Israel's hope had been realized. Israel's hope had been redefined. And this is where he quotes 2 Corinthians, Look. The right time is now. Look, the day of salvation is here. Paul casts himself as the latter-day prophet, announcing that Isaiah's ancient vision has come true at last. So, what Wright shows here is how our passage today is very rooted in the inaugurated eschatology we've talked so much about over the past couple months. Paul quotes one of the servant songs in Isaiah that speaks of Israel's eschatological salvation. For Paul, salvation is both now and not yet. And the participatory theology we've talked about is very relevant to this concept. So what we'll see today is that Paul connects his own cross-shaped ministry to the ministry of the servant in these songs in Isaiah. And also, that the now-but-not-yet tensions that this ministry involves. What we'll also do is look at the final model of the, the atonement, the final of the three that we've been talking about, Christus Victor, that Christ's victory at the cross is very much tied to the salvation Paul is talking about in this passage. So let's begin by looking at the first few verses of the passage today. We're looking at 2 Corinthians 6, 1 through 10. And Paul begins, As God's co-workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. For he says, In the time of my favor, I heard you. And in the day of salvation, I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. We put no stumbling block in anyone's path so that our ministry will not be discredited. Rather, as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way." So it's pretty clear that Paul has the second chunk of the book of Isaiah in mind here, and particularly the parts of it that talk about this eschatological In the last couple sermons, we looked at 2 Corinthians 5.17, where Paul references new creation. And that idea comes most explicitly from Isaiah 65 and 66. We also saw what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, that God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we could become the righteousness of God. And that has strong resonances with the suffering servant in Isaiah 52 and 3. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds, we are healed." That passage in Isaiah is the fourth of what we call the Servant Songs. And while there's some variation in exactly how these are delineated, they're generally described as what I've got up here. Isaiah 42, 1 through 4, 49, 1 through 6, 54 through 9, and 52, 13 to 53, 12. So in our passage today, Paul quotes Isaiah 49, 8, and that verse directly follows on from the second servant song. Here's what that servant song says. Listen to me, you islands. Hear this, you distant nations. Before I was born, the Lord called me. From my mother's womb, he has spoken my name. He made my mouth like a sharpened sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me into a polished arrow and concealed me in his quiver. He said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will display my splendor. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing at all. Yet what is due me is in the Lord's hand, and my reward is with my God. And now the Lord says, He who formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him and gather Israel to himself, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has been my strength. He says, It is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth." So know how Isaiah's servant is told that he will be a light for the Gentiles or the nations, which is exactly what Paul's ministry had reached. and how the song talks about salvation reaching the ends of the earth. What does that salvation look like? The servant song is followed with this. This is what the Lord says, the Redeemer and Holy One of Israel. To him who is despised and abhorred by the nation, to the servant of rulers, kings will see you and stand up. Princes will see and bow down because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. This is what the Lord says. In the time of my favor, I will answer you. And in the day of salvation, I will help you. I will keep you and make you a co- to be a covenant for the people to restore the land and to reassign its desolate inheritances, to say to the captives, come out, and to those in darkness, be free. They will feed beside the roads and find pasture on every barren hill. So what Paul quotes here about the day of salvation is about return from exile. Okay, Restoring the land, reassigning the desolate inheritances, saying to the captives, come out, saying to those in darkness, be free. And so what's to be made of all this? Why am I spending so much time in these Isaiah texts? The answer is because Paul has drawn on them in such a way that's deeply relevant to all this eschatology stuff we've been talking about in the sermon series. So first, as we've already mentioned, these passages are foundational to Israel's eschatological expectations kind of as a whole that we we open the series with. Okay. This is a slide from the first sermon um, where I lay those expectations out. So we've already talked about how Paul has brought up new creation in 517, one of these expectations. He evokes the suffering servant and forgiveness of sin in 521. Here, in 6.1 through 4, Paul uses the terms ministry and ministers of God to refer back to what he said in chapter 3 about being ministers of the New Covenant. The New Covenant was another of those eschatological expectations. And the passage he quoted from Isaiah today is all about that return from exile, which was a major expectation. About the gathering and obedience of the nations. Being a light to the Gentiles, okay, and salvation reaching the ends of the earth. So Paul has this whole nexus of eschatological expectation in mind. And what does he say about these eschatological realities? He says that they have been inaugurated. Commenting on, on this direct quote from Isaiah, Paul says, I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. He emphasizes the now of the now-but-not-yet inaugurated eschatology. So that's the first thing. It just, these, these Isaiah texts show us that Paul's got this whole big eschatological picture in view. Second thing is that Paul connects this stuff in Isaiah to his own ministry, which, remember, that's what he's been defending all along here. He connects that that ministry to these eschatological realities and to the ministry of the servant in particular. He does this by describing himself as co-working with God in the context of all this. The reference to God isn't directly in the text, but the NIV, I think, rightly puts it in there because that's what's very much implied by the context. And then, he also urges the Corinthians not to receive the grace of God in vain, which is kind of an allusion to the the terminology used in, in Isaiah 49, 4 here. So Paul participates in the eschatological ministry of the servant. He sees the connection there. The third thing is that this, that, this concept of participation, which we've talked about at some length, really helps to make sense of what Paul has done here, in the way that it makes sense with, I think, so much of what Paul does in the letter. So the identity of, of the servant figure in the servant songs is the subject of a lot of discussion because there seems to be a lot of flux there. So at one, in one moment in these servant songs, it seems that the, the servant is Israel, right? Israel as a whole. And then, almost in the next breath, it'll, it'll seem like the servant is actually the prophet who's, who's speaking. And then, in another place, it'll seem as though it's this, this mysterious figure that doesn't really fit either of those particularly well, and we often see that associated with Jesus, right? So there's a lot of flux between these different servant figures. I think that that becomes coherent when we allow for this concept of participation, of, corporate representation, one figure representing others that it is identified with. So the prophet can be representative of Israel, just as Jesus ultimately becomes the one and true faithful Israelite, representing the whole of Israel in his person. And so, if that way of looking at it is correct, it makes sense of how Paul can see himself identified with the servant. Participation is the interpretive key here. It's what connects Israel to the prophet, to Jesus, to Paul and his co-workers. Paul is in Christ, the ultimate servant, and participates in the ultimate fulfillment of the servant's ministry, which he sees as being worked out in his own ministry. So identifying himself with the servant of Isaiah 49 here fits really well with what we've talked about, what what we've seen about participation already in chapter 5, right? In one died, therefore, all have died. He made him who who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we could be the righteousness of God. So the way that participation incorporates Paul, Jesus, and the various, various servant figures in Isaiah provides us with a good segue into the eschatological tensions that Paul describes next in this passage. So let's read. He says, Rather, as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. In great endurance, in troubles, hardships and distresses, in beatings, imprisonments, and riots, in hard work, Sleepless nights, and hunger, in purity, understanding, patience, and kindness, in the Holy Spirit, and in sincere love, in truthful speech, and in the power of God, with weapons of righteousness in the right hand and in the left. So there are two things that jump out at me in this. The first is any notion that Paul might have had some kind of triumphalism about um, salvation, about, now, about the idea that now is the day of salvation, is an immediately eliminated, okay, right? Now is the day of the Lord's favor. Now is the day of salvation. So what does our ministry co-working with God look like? Troubles, hardships, distresses, beatings, imprisonments, riots, hard work, sleepless nights, and hunger. Second, if we have the servant figure from Isaiah in view, this kind of stuff sounds a lot like the suffering servant, in Isaiah 52 and 3. So I talked last, or last time about how I think penal substitution is best understood as inclusive substitution. Jesus, as the suffering servant, was stricken by God and afflicted, pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. But this works because of our participation in him. He is our representative substitute. And so that means that to be a Christian is to share in his death, to share in his sufferings. Paul says that he wants to participate in Christ's sufferings in Philippians 3. So as he fills up in his flesh what's still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions in Colossians 1. So that all these troubles that he lists here go along with salvation, if it's very well with the idea that participating in Christ's sufferings and participating in his resurrection go together. And Paul doesn't just talk about the suffering, right? He also mentions beautiful aspects of this ministry. Purity, understanding, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, sincere love, and truthful speech. And with those beautiful things, he also talks about powerful things, things that are typically associated with salvation, the power of God, and what he calls the weapons of righteousness. And so, if we've, as, as we've seen so much through this series, these things are just inextricable for Paul. It's all about these tensions in his inaugurated eschatology. The age to come is both now and not yet. Participating in Christ involves both death and resurrection. And the way that Paul continues the passage here illustrates really well, I think, how these tensions were experienced in his ministry. So listing what commends his ministry, he continues through glory and dishonor, bad report and good report, genuine yet regarded as imposters, known yet regarded as unknown, dying and yet we live, beaten and yet not killed, sorrowful yet always rejoicing, poor yet making many rich having nothing, but possessing everything. You'd be hard-pressed, I think, to come up with a better illustration of the tensions that characterize New Testament inaugurated eschatology than this. In his ministry, in his participation in Christ, Paul experiences the age to come as both now, right, glory, good. Report, genuineness, being known, life, rejoicing, making many rich, possessing everything. And at the same time, it's not yet. Okay, dishonor, bad reports, being regarded as imposters and strangers, death, beatings, sorrow, poverty, having nothing. So Gordon Fee points out how the salvation we've been talking about is described alternatively in the New Testament as complete, as in process, and as future in the New Testament because of that same now but not yet framework. He says, with the coming of Christ, the new order has begun. All things have become new, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. It's no longer an option to view things from the perspective of the flesh, that is, from the old order point of view. The death and resurrection of Christ and the gift of the Spirit mean both death to the old and a radical, newly constituted life in the present. For Paul, therefore, salvation in Christ is a fundamentally eschatological reality. Meaning, first of all, that God's final salvation of his people has already been accomplished by Christ. In a sort of divine time warp, the future condemnation that we all richly deserve has been transferred from the future into the past having been born by Christ, Romans 8, 1 through 3. Thus, we have been saved, as it says in Ephesians 2, 8. Since our final um, salvation has not yet been fully realized, he can likewise speak of salvation as something presently in process. We are being saved, 1 Corinthians 1, 8. And as yet to be completed, we shall be saved, Romans 5, 9. Okay, so, so this eschatological tension with regard to salvation that we see in Paul, that we see in the New Testament, it serves as a good entry point, I think, into this final model of the atonement that we're talking about, Christus Victor. So just to recap, we've been working with the categorization of atonement models that breaks them down into three main groups, moral influence or example, penal substitution, and Christus Victor. With moral example, I suggested that despite having been overlooked, it's a profoundly biblical model of what the cross accomplishes and an understanding of atonement that that we need to recover. So at the cross, Jesus cut a new trail for us and showed us an example of other-centered, self-giving love that transforms and empowers us to follow in his steps. With penal substitution, I suggested it should be understood as inclusive or participatory. Jesus enters into death, which is the penalty of our sin, to find us there. And through the union that's made possible by his joining us in death, it becomes possible for us to come through death into life. Since he was righteous and vindicated by God in the resurrection. He suffers for our sin, we benefit from his righteousness. Or in sacrificial terms, his blood, his pure life, cleanses us from our sin, so that we can have access to God. And so, that brings us to the Christus Victor model. And that looks at the cross as the place where Christ conquers, where Christ liberates. And I want to start the discussion by looking at some of the key verses kind of in support of this model, and it makes the most sense just to start with Jesus. So in John 12, Jesus has introduced the idea that his hour to die has come. And he follows that by saying, uh, this is John 12:31 through 33. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. So similarly, in First John, the epistle of First John, we read, The one who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. So for Jesus, his death is the place where he will wage war on the devil and the devil's work. And the book of Hebrews puts this in a particularly pointed way. It says, since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity. And that's a very participatory notion, right? He, he takes on our flesh and blood to kind of be in us we, so that we can be in him, right? Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death. That is the devil. And free those who, threw, who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear. By overcoming death for us, he frees us from those who have power over us through our fear of it. And if you think about people, you know, like Martin Luther King, the the ones who, who have taken the message of the cross seriously, despite what it means, you can see how this is at work. They're no longer afraid of death because Jesus has robbed the devil of that power, and so they can step out in faith Jesus's way, and you see his victory worked out in the world. So what we see in in this passage in Hebrews, as we saw in other models, is that the victory through the cross is for us. Salvation, as in the rest of the Bible, is deliverance from the things that enslave and oppress us. It's rescue, it's liberation. And so, what we see in Colossians speaks in those terms. It says, "For he has." rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves in whom we have redemption the forgiveness of sins chapter 2 when you were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh god made you alive with christ he forgave us all our sins having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness which stood against us and condemned us he has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authority, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. So it's worth noting here, what we also saw in the other passages as, we looked through, as we've looked through these different models, that these models are not mutually exclusive, quite the opposite. They're all interwoven. In the New Testament, moral example and influence, penal substitution and sacrifice, to Christ's victory and our liberation—those things all go together. And so, we would do well to keep it that way and not reduce the cross to something more narrow than it is. But this brings us to the eschatological tension. Okay, if Christ has conquered, what's the deal with all the suffering that Paul experiences? in his ministry, right? If he's been enthroned over the powers, why? The troubles, the hardships, the distresses, the beatings, the imprisonments, the riots, the hard work, the sleepless nights, and the hunger. Now, I should say that the New Testament doesn't give us a direct answer to, like, the why or the how, what's going on behind the scenes. Okay, but what it does give us is a framework for what to expect. And it's rooted in these tensions that we've been talking about of power and weakness, of life and death. Perhaps the most exhaustive description of Christus Victor is the entire book of Revelation. Um, some months back, Pete spoke of Revelation 5, and I wanted to revisit that for a bit. So, Revelation is the translation of the Greek word apocalypsis, right? It means and unveiling, pulling back of the curtain. As Daryl Johnson puts it, the fundamental conviction of apocalyptic literature is that things are not as they seem. There is more to reality than meets the unaided eyes or ears. There is more to the present historical moment than we can deduce. And apocalyptic writing seeks to unveil that unseen reality of the present, to pull back the curtain on the present so that we can see what's really going on. And one of the visions that John sees that pulls back the curtain for us on what's really going on, he's transported to the heavenly throne room. And in the hand of the one seated on the throne, there's a scroll. And this scroll represents, in the words of Richard Bauckham, the secret purpose of God for establishing his kingdom, or in Beale's words, God's plan of judgment and redemption. the The ability to open the scroll represents the authority to execute this divine plan. John looks around and weeps because there's no one found who's worthy to open it. There's no one found who's worthy to do that. But then we read this remarkable passage in Revelation 5. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain Richard Bauckham says, all that is opposed to God's rule, we are to understand, has been defeated by the Lamb. The continuing and ultimate victory of God over evil, which the rest of Revelation describes, is no more than the working out of the decisive victory of the Lamb on the cross. And he adds that it's it's with the Lamb's victory as the basis for this working out that John is actually primarily concerned. While evil powers opposed to God dominate the earth, that victory has still to reach its goal. But those who as a result of it already acknowledge God's rule have an indispensable role to play in the full working out of the Lamb's victory. So, the suffering in Paul's ministry is in part because the decisive victory which Jesus accomplished on the cross is still being worked out. Okay, Christians participate in Christ's victory over Satan, but it's through similar means to the Lamb's own victory. In chapter 12 of Revelation, we read that they they have conquered him, the devil, by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives even unto death." So Bacham once more, says, the whole verse requires that the reference to the blood of the Lamb is not purely to Christ's death, but to the deaths of the Christian martyrs, who, following Christ's example, bear witness even at the cost of their lives. With this witness, even as far as death, does not have an independent value of its own. Its value depends on being a continuation of his witness. So it is by the Lamb's blood that they conquer. Their deaths defeat Satan only by participating in the victory the Lamb won over Satan by his death. So there are a few... Reflections on all this that I want to close with. Um, First, it's of utmost importance that Christ's victory takes the form of this others-centered self given the Lamb who was slain. His victory over death and evil is achieved through his sacrificial death. The one who conquered is the Lamb who was slain. And second, that being the case, it would follow that our own participation in that victory would take a similar form. This is the theme of power and weakness, of life through death that we've been talking about. Those who worship the Lamb will have cross-shaped lives. And their victory will come through blood, sometimes metaphorically, right? Troubles, hardships, hard work, sleepless nights. But sometimes, literally, as with the martyr's faithful witness to the point of death. And third, what inaugurated eschatology helps us to understand is that this victory has decisively begun. Our Lamb has conquered. And most, I would hope all of us, have experienced that victory, that salvation, sort of bursting forth in our own lives. We've had, you know, we've experienced Victory over various addictions. We've seen our lifestyles transformed in a way that's beautiful. Sometimes it's in social you know, uh, ways, like what we talked about with what Martin Luther King accomplished, right? In these different ways, that salvation, that victory is breaking forth. The power of darkness is being broken, okay? The, the decisive victory has been won, and it's being worked out as God's kingdom expands. And so, we can expect both now and not yet dimensions to the salvation that Christ has brought, is bringing, and will bring about. We can expect to be known and yet regarded as unknown. We can expect dying and yet living, being beaten and not yet killed, sorrowful, always rejoicing, poor, yet making many rich, having nothing and yet possessing everything. I think that's all bound up in the way that christ conquers at the cross and the way that we participate in it so let me pray for us lord god may we see the blessing and the privilege of participating in this victory May we see it extended through our cross-shaped lives to those who have yet to experience it for themselves until one day your salvation finally reaches in its fullness to the furthest reaches of the earth.